everybody. This is Sean Harwell. You are listening to the Never Heard of a Podcast, in case you didn't know what you were doing right now. This is the podcast where we talk about movies that have fallen through our cracks. And of course, I am joined today, thankfully, once again. I I don't know why he keeps coming back, but he does. My co-host, colleague, and co-Olympian, say hello. Craig, Olympian's name here, Moorhead. I didn't watch the Olympics. I was not much of an Olympic follower. So uh, if I had, I would have had a clever name to throw in the middle there. Did you watch the Olympics? Not not a ton. You know, I kept hearing about things and they were things that had happened overnight. Like the women's hockey game was supposed to be amazing. I'm a big hockey fan, so I I really should have watched that. The men's didn't do much, but uh, I kind of expected that. But uh, yeah, they sound like the women brought it all home and then that was an amazing game but it was at like two o'clock in the morning and so you know i heard about it early the next day and i was like yeah i should check out the highlights (laughs) to that but i saw some curling i got into a little a little bit of the curling this time for the first time ever and enjoyed that because those those ladies are all mic'd up so you get to hear them hear them do all their strategy and stuff it was kind of cool what else should we talk about in this never uh watch olympic podcast uh man how about uh those Ski, uh, skeet shooters. <laughs> Seems dangerous to be shooting guns and skiing at the same time. I don't know how they do it. But no, you know what, Sean? You're right. Uh, let's get this train back on the tracks. Today we have a tee-up episode, which means we're just going to talk about kind of the background of the movie that we're going to talk about next week. Which means last week we talked about a whole movie. Mm-hmm. And what movie was that? We talked about the 2008 uh, indie drama romantic little sliver of comedy from Barry Jenkins, the director of Moonlight, called Medicine for Melancholy. I think we both mm. grabbed a lot from that movie to appreciate and admire. So, yeah, if you haven't listened to that, check that out. And if you haven't seen the movie, definitely recommend checking it out. Today, however, I'm excited because uh, you picked this movie and then... You told me why you picked this movie, and that was depressing, which we'll get to in a second. But uh, obviously, I mean, this is you know, this is a cool chance to see something that has long been on my list. I think a lot of cinephiles will have heard of, but possibly not seen, and then dig a little bit deeper on, yeah, yeah, one of the most admired filmmakers of all time. So, Craig, why don't you tell us what the movie is and why you chose it? Well, Sean, this is the 1953. American anti-war film, Fear and Desire, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Now, Stanley Kubrick, uh, the reason I picked this one for March was because he left us in March to go make movies in another realm, I hope. Mm-hmm. Um, but but this was, this was one that's, that's, I mean, obviously it's his first feature. I have never reached that far back in the catalog. Um, and, and having looked into it, uh, it has some pretty interesting history. I think it's going to make it really fun to watch. Yeah, that was my uh, that was my purpose in picking it. Now, pretty, pretty depressing, Craig. Pretty depressing. It's pretty depressing. It's pretty depressing. Do you remember when you heard that he had died? I don't rem- I don't remember it like I was sitting in the living room and, right. you know, crying into well, a pillow. Well, we were in school I remember still. It. Because this was, uh, I, I remember, yeah. and I, I only really remember because my birthday was the day before. He died on March 7th, oh, wow. right? 
I just, I think I had gone out to eat with my now wife and parents, perhaps. It was like a Sunday, I think, or Saturday. I don't know. It was a weekend day. I remember going out to eat and like having this perfectly fine, nice, like birthday celebration of, <laughs> of, a, of a meal and coming back. And uh, there was this dude on the hall that lived across from me uh, by the name of, should I say it? Jason Shoup? Some of you will know who he is. And like, <laughs> Jason Shoup? I, I just remember him like crawling out of his room, like his, like coming out of a cocoon, just like excited to tell me this terrible thing just this way of, that <laughs> oh, he had of saying did you hear Kubrick died or whatever I was like what you know it's just like we're not like knee deep in the internet at this point really where it's like it was no. just, you're gonna get a notification on your phone about this or find about it on Facebook now it's like right that's definitely to my knowledge maybe that like when did Chris Farley die or maybe Phil Hartman but like one of those like celebrity deaths that at, in that era that, it, that yeah. really was just like threw me for a loop, which it probably shouldn't have given his age. But, you know, you know, you knew so little about him. And Eyes Wide Shut was coming out that summer. So it just seemed impossible yeah. that that this would happen when it happened. And that it, I'm not going to say I immediately thought like, oh, no, is Eyes Wide Shut in trouble? Or is it going to get finished or anything like that? But it did cross my mind, you know, at, at a certain point. And yeah. I knew that there were you know, uh, statements released about the fact that he was indeed done with the movie and it was locked and, and delivered and everything like that. And, and that, that was fine. But uh, it was, it was, a, it was a moment for sure. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's the main thing I remembered about it was that he died before eyes wide shut came out. Cause it had been, you know, it had been so long yeah. since a movie of his had come out. I didn't think of him as being old when he died. No. Really? What was he in his 60s, 70s? Mm-hmm. I mean, it seemed like we had at least 10 more good years. We could get one more movie out of it. Yeah. I know. Uh, no, so it, selfish. It, was, it sucked. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that dude is uh, a one-of-a-kind dude. Before I forget, before we deep dive into this, once again, we talked about this last season. Cannot recommend the book Stanley Kubrick and Me enough. It is mm-hmm. written, uh, well, in collaboration with Emilio D'Alessandro, who was his assistant for 30 years. There is a documentary about that, and that is called S for Stanley. S is for Stanley, excuse me, from 2015. I've seen this. I think it was on, it might be on Netflix or Amazon Prime. It's, it's floating around on one of those streaming services, I believe. And uh, mm-hmm. it sounds good as a book, but either one of those, I still think is probably the most revealing thing about yeah. Kubrick I've ever seen or read to date. Yeah. That said, I've I still find myself learning things like I did today, so... You know, I think with that in mind, let's uh, let's get in this a little bit, yeah? Let's get in. I just burped, excuse me. That's how we get into it. I'm going to start with Kubrick himself, because obviously I think that's that's the main draw of this thing. You know, nobody out there is writing that Fear and Desire is this masterpiece that has to be seen least of all Kubrick himself you know is is definitely noted for not wanting this movie remembered as his pinnacle of filmmaking by any stretch of the imagination right so let's get a little background on him perhaps in just the days prior to him making this first film because I think a lot of us know about what happened after that right yeah Craig you'd be amazed what you can learn from Wikipedia what's that well did you know Kubrick was born in the lying in hospital at 307 2nd Avenue in Manhattan, New York City. 
They got the address. They have all the, like, you could just, we're going to build an entire, like, Kubrick sightseeing tour based upon Wikipedia here today, okay? Well, it's more lucrative than the podcast, so yeah. So, he was born to Jacob and Gertrude. His father also was known as Jack, or Jacques, if you will. He had one sister named Barbara. His parents and paternal grandparents were of Polish, Jewish, Australia, Austrian, excuse me, Jewish, and Romanian Jewish origin. His dad was a doctor graduated from the New York Homeopathic Medical College in 1927, the same year he married Stanley's mom. This I thought was kind of interesting. Listen to this. So Kubrick's great-grandfather, Hirsch, who apparently also spelled his name without the C, and then sometimes without the C and with an E on the end, which sounds like it would be pronounced entirely different, he came to America in 1899 at the age of 47 and it says that he left behind his wife and two grown children to start a new life with a younger woman and that's all it says about that but that's pretty fascinating whoa yeah (laughs) yes and so that was yeah his great-grandfather his children were grown so one of those children was elias or elias and that man moved to the u.s in 1902 and that would be kubrick's grandfather kubrick when he was born his parents lived at an apartment at 2160 Clinton Avenue in the Bronx. <laughs> I love this. I can't believe they have, people have all these. Wow. How do they get these addresses? This is crazy. I don't know. They're digging deep. Soon after his sister was birthed, if you will, mm-hmm. Kubrick started school. <laughs> he went to public school three in the Bronx, Craig, and then public school 90 later on. What classrooms I think did he, he have had Miss Walker. For English, <laughs> no. Oh, I don't. Th- th- this was kind of fun though. They do have this. So, okay, so I, and I saw this in multiple ways. They talk about, oh yeah, he was he was really really smart. He just was a terrible terrible student, right? Sure. It says that he missed fifty six days of school in his first term alone. Whoa, first term. <laughs> yeah, it was as many as he attended. Yes, <laughs> that's uh, that's very poor attendance. I would like to stress in this podcast. That anything he did in school, don't don't just do that yourself and think that well uh, that's how you become like a, a filmmaker. I just I don't think it will work out as well for you, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean maybe it's not the forties and you're not Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. So when he was twelve, his father taught him how to play chess. Obviously, that was a big influence for the rest of his life. That's well noted. It appears in many many movies including The Killing. Jazz also was a big interest, obviously, that has been mentioned. There's a great photo of him floating around on the internet uh, at a drum set, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Also got into photography uh, in his teens. He was chosen as the official school photographer when he was in high school, assuming he actually attended those classes. <laughs> but at graduation, his grades, and also they said the fact that this was following the war, and you had a lot of you know soldiers coming back looking to go to college that his hopes of of getting a higher education were very very slim and i don't think his dad was completely thrilled about that but they did <laughs> did encourage his photography interest and his father yeah. gave him a i believe it was a graflex camera i read but he sold a photographic series to Look magazine. And Look, I think, at the time was not unlike Life magazine, which I'm sure everybody has heard of. Mm-hmm. said that he took a photo to Helen O'Brien, who was the head of the photographic department. She purchased it without hesitation for 25 bucks 
on the spot. And it was printed on June 26, 1945. And then in 1946, he became an apprentice photographer at the magazine and then later a full-time staff photographer. Uh, There was another photographer quoted as saying that he thought Kubrick lacked the personality to make it as a director in Hollywood at the time, thinking that, you know, he was, quote, a quiet fellow. He didn't say much. He was thin, skinny, and kind of poor, like we all were. I'm assuming he means all, all of us photographers. Right. He quickly became known for his storytelling ability in those photographs, and he did several sequences that were published, like there was... One called a short story from a movie balcony. There was one where he did of uh, said eighteen pictures of people waiting in a dental office, and then he got to go to Portugal to to document uh, uh, do a travel piece. He did the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus, and then he did a, a series on boxing. He was a big boxing enthusiast, and so there was a right. series published in 1949 featuring the the boxer Walter Cartier. Might have been Cartier. I don't know how to pronounce that last name. I just Cartier seems mm-hmm. most familiar. Cartier was what it looked like to me. Yeah. He also got to photograph a lot of jazz musicians, you know, including Frank Sinatra, who I, I don't even think of as jazz. Eddie Condon was a name I recognized, and then a musician named this was a great name, Sharky Banano, which <laughs> I just like to say Sharky Bananas got married for the first time to his high school sweetheart. Again, I don't know how he was able to form a relationship in high school when he was. Not there that much. But that was Toba Metz. They got married in 1948. They lived together at 36 West 16th Street off 6th Avenue, just north of Greenwich Village, Craig, when you're planning your trip. Always. And it was after being married that he really started getting into film. It is said that he was very much influenced and inspired by the work of director Max Ophels, Craig. Max Ophels. Yes, we did the movie Cult. I believe, which was directed yep. by Max Ophels. And also uh, Elio Kazan, who he described as, quote, the best director in America at the time, saying that he could, quote, perform miracles with his actors, which is high praise indeed. Indeed. It's also noted that he got obsessed with the process. And I saw this a lot, like completely self-taught in the, in the practices of filmmaking. You know, he just like studied it and studied it and studied it. And I, I don't doubt that to be true. The only sort of thing it has here that's like concrete example was that he frequented the library of Arthur Rosen Rothstein, excuse me, who was the one of the uh, directors of the photographer group there at Look Magazine, and would borrow books from him on the process. So that led him to make some short films. This was kind of interesting. I thought as he had a another school friend named Alex. Singer, or Alexander Singer, excuse me, who apparently intended to direct a version of the Iliad after graduating high school, which that's pretty, <laughs> that's yeah. pretty ambitious. Didn't quite happen, but Singer worked for the March of Time, which was the infamous newsreel in the era. And from him, you know, Kubrick kind of learned that, oh, you mean it costs like 40 grand to make a, uh, <laughs> to make a short movie, which is money he did not have, but he it said he did have 1500 in savings. And he managed to use that to kind of get things going here. Walter Cartier, the name we mentioned before, he went back to him and did a short documentary about that boxer called Day of the Fight. This is a 16-minute black and white. I feel like I've seen some of that. 
Well, it's definitely online. I think that's something we'll put up on the site. It might it might be on the killing criterion disc. I'm not positive. Mm. They've got Killer's Kiss on that as well. Anyway, yeah, we'll look for those for sure and see if we can find some good links to it. It said that he had considered asking Montgomery Cliff to narrate that, which would have been pretty interesting because yeah. he had photographed him for look. Instead, he went with a CBS News guy named Doug Edwards. And then Gerald Freed did the score for that film, which took the budget up to around four grand, and he sold it to RKO. Actually, it said thirty nine hundred. He sold it to RKO for four grand, so which was the most that they had paid for a short film at the time, yeah. apparently. So he made about a hundred dollars profit. <laughs> but Gerald Freed's name will come up again. He's done a, a scores for several Cooper movies. After that, though, you know, he was inspired and, and kept going. And it says that he definitely tried to make the rounds in New York and meet as many filmmakers as he can and learn about it. And then he made Flying Padre in 1951, which was a film documenting the Reverend Fred Stadtmuller. Stadtmuller. Who doesn't know that name? Well, me, apparently. Mm. He was a reverend who traveled 4,000 miles to visit 11 churches. And it said that several of the views from and of the plane are somewhat echoed in 2001 in various shots. I don't know about that. We'll see. And then he followed that up with another short documentary called The Seafarers, which was his first color movie. This came out in June 1953 or was completed. And, quote, it has shots of ships machinery, a canteen, and a union meeting. <laughs> Sounds fascinating, right? Yeah, he uh, he maybe got commissioned by the Seafarers International Union there, and it was a paying gig. And so, yeah, you understand that? But clearly, his heart was in narrative film, thankfully. And uh, that brings us to Fear and Desire, which... I can very quickly run through the cast and crew because there are about 15 people total. It's not a lot. David Allen is your narrator. I could not find anything else about him. You got Frank Silvera, who would later pop up in Viva Zapata and Killer's Kiss, the other Kubrick movie. A lot of TV. Kenneth Harp was in Dragnet and The Court Gesture. Paul Mazursky is a name we'll probably <laughs> recognize because, Craig, he had a cameo in Into the Night, which we talked about last year from 1985. I've done episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm, Crazy in Alabama, Carlito's Way. Well, this is all on the acting side. And then he became a director himself. Did Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, Down and Out in Beverly Hills, Harry and Tonto, An Unmarried Woman, Moscow on the Hudson, etc. Yeah, we should pause just to point out and admire... How crazy it is that another director came out of this <laughs> tiny, tiny movie. Yeah. It's just nuts. Anyway, continuing with the cast, there's only two more. Steve Coit, who was in Brian's song, The Long Goodbye, and a ton of TV. He's quite the actor. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I'm just, I'm here for color. Okay. I'm just here for color. Go Let's ahead. see what you can do with Virginia Lath, who was in mm -hmm. Black Widow and A Kiss Before Dying, and also... A million TV things. Craig, the screenplay was written by Howard Sackler, classmate, yes. a classmate of Kubrick's at William Howard Taft High School in the Bronx. Sackler later won the freaking Pulitzer Prize for his 1968 play, The Great White Hope, which was also turned into a movie, which he adapted. Craig, Jaws 2. He wrote the script for Jaws 2. Did you know that? I didn't know he wrote the script. I thought he wrote the, uh, the speech. 
No, he didn't write the speech. Well, he's listed as a writer. Sorry, the Quint speech. Uh, yeah, no, erase everything I just said. Okay, cool. Yeah, Sean, I, I did know that. <laughs> uh, Amazing. And he's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Also, Grey Lady Down and St. Jack. Kubrick's first wife, Toba, the aforementioned Toba. He wrote his first wife? He wrote. Oh. And she mm. worked as a dialogue director in this movie, which I'm not quite sure what that means. Me either. We'll find out. So, yes, yes, 15 people total, it says. The director, five actors, five on-set crew members, and four Mexican laborers who transported the film equipment around California's San Gabriel Mountains, where the film was shot. I don't see their names on here, unfortunately. Yeah. I would love to. I mean, for the fact that we know every address Kubrick ever took a dump in, I'd love to know who those people are. Where, like, where are they now? Would love to, would love to. But yes, and then, and also, as I mentioned, Gerald Freed did the music for this as well. He did Killer's Kiss, he did The Killing, did Paths of Glory, a bunch of stuff, including Casablanca, the TV show, the TV show Casablanca, which oh, I didn't know was a thing. And uh, of course, Gilligan's Island, I, I had to mention as well. So very lengthy, lengthy resume for Mr. Gerald Freed. Indeed. And Craig, that is the end of my portion of this podcast. I'm sure there's a ton more I could have done. Oh, let me do, I, I do want to point out one thing. Uh, yes. If if you haven't seen the photographs, I imagine a lot of you have, uh, there's a great coffee table book. I got it right here beside me called Stanley Kubrick, Drama and Shadows, Photographs, 1945 to 1950. It, it has most of the stuff he did for Look, Look Magazine, if I'm not mistaken. It's really just some fantastic black and white photography. I mean, even even if you just go look up this book to see the cover, there's just a great photo of a woman walking down a set of stairs carrying a load of books in her hand. And it's very simple, but it framed perfectly and tells a story within that photo. Highly recommend that as well. It's a, it's a great coffee table book for your coffee table and your coffee. Yeah, I just looked it up now. Uh, the hardcover's going for $140. Oh, I should hang on to this then, huh? Jump on it. Yeah, that is too bad. That's exactly the kind of coffee table book I'd like to have. Yeah, it's a good one. Well, you know, Sean, your end is my beginning. Yes. What did you learn about this movie? Because uh, I glanced a little bit at just some of the yeah the details of this thing, and it's kind of overwhelming how much there is for a movie. I feel like not a lot of people have seen. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I, I think that the most interesting part of it that's followed this movie around for a long time is that Stanley Kubrick doesn't like this movie. Yeah. He really doesn't like this movie. He's called it a, a youthful mistake. <laughs> He said... Uh, I've been called that before, too, by the way. Yeah, oh, I mean, who, who of us hasn't been? Yeah. And maybe someone said this about you as well. Uh, it's not a film I remember with any pride, except for the fact that it was finished. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah, uh, and certainly a presumptuous failure. Wow. A serious effort ineptly done. It goes on and on. I read one about comparing it to a child's artwork on the fridge, which... <laughs> was a great great bit but <laughs> well, it's there's so many of those right yeah yeah it is interesting you know he, he comes out so hard against this movie clearly he's very embarrassed by it i guess but when it first appeared it, it got pretty good notices like mm -hmm. the, the worst anyone seemed to have to say about it was that it was not uh, directed with any inspiration i think i think that was the new york times well here's my thing about yeah. all of this is like I mean, the dude was well known for not giving a ton of interviews, right? 
And yet, I'm, I'm like you. I saw like five different quotes from him about this movie. And it was, just, yeah. was like, well, where? Like, I, I don't know. I always wonder with some of this stuff, like, do we need to take some of it with a grain of salt that he actually said these things? <laughs> you know? Well, a part of me kind of wonders is, like, is this stuff the reason that he didn't give interviews later? Like, could be. Was he, he was embarrassed of this movie. And then later on, he was embarrassed by how he handled his embarrassment. Maybe. You know, instead yeah. of just stepping back and saying, the movie is the thing. Like, love it or hate it, watch it or don't. I'm not going to say anything else about it. Yeah. The movie is what it is now. Because I could, I, I could see myself doing that. <laughs> sure, yeah. So it was known, you know, that he didn't like it. And then he, he tried to buy up all the prints of it and get rid of them. George Eastman House restored it. And in 1994, they, they did a screening for it. Apparently, he, he had uh, Warner Brothers issue a press release saying that the movie was, uh, quote, written by a failed poet, crude by a few friends, and completely inept, boring, and pretentious. <laughs> uh, that it was a bumbling amateur film exercise. So that was 1994. So really, uh, maybe this has nothing to do with why he, he didn't give a lot of interviews, because that, that was close to the end of, well, yeah. of everything. And then as someone points out, you know, I mean, a big reason why it's such a draw now is that he doesn't like it. Yeah, that's like, true. He, he, he really doesn't like it. And, and that makes it even a, a, a bigger deal. So rumor has it he's destroyed the negative. But then it fell into the public domain. So yeah. anyone could, could find it and show it anytime they wanted to. I saw something about a print being discovered like randomly in Puerto Rico <laughs> at some oh, place. Yeah. And I mean... I feel like that would be one of those like holy grail discoveries in a weird way, right? Yeah. But maybe not. I mean, if it's in the public domain now, I mean, I wonder if that dilutes the value of it a little bit. But anyway, that's maybe neither here nor there. But I lo- I mean, just like imagine finding that at like, I, I don't think this was the case, but like going in like a Goodwill and finding a print of a freaking Oh, yeah. Of- <laughs> that would be amazing. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, and, and I can't think of the anxiety it would give me to back in the day when this stuff was on film where someone could have it and you couldn't just like rescind it over the internet. Yeah. You know, and and you really want to get this thing out of circulation. I mean, I guess the first thing you might do is not let anyone know you don't like it. Because as soon as you say you hate it, yeah, I I would, man, I I would take that print and lock it up tight, make sure nobody touches it. Yeah. So at different points, I guess it was was known as uh, the shape of fear. Uh, and I think also just fear. I'm not, I'm I'm, huh. I'm wondering where desire came in. Yeah, kind of excited to find that out. the 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 other title was the trap, so it was known as the trap, ah. and then it was called the shape of fear. Uh, and I think one when, when they got it distributed, it became known as uh, fear and desire. But yeah, so Kubrick went to his uncle, who owned uh, a chain of drugstores in California, Martin Perviler, and asked him to finance the movie. And uh, apparently it cost between twenty and forty thousand dollars. That's in nineteen fifty-two, maybe is when they shot it in fifty-three. Yeah, that's when it came out. That's a ton of money. That's a lot of money. Well, when you consider, yeah, medicine for melancholy was made for like fifteen grand in two thousand seven. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah. So that's pretty nuts. And um, yeah, whenever he found Mazursky. You let him know, uh, you've got the part. We leave Monday, unscheduled flight from Newark, 
airport. We pay $100 a week. Room and board. Sold. Now, yeah. <laughs> and that, that was what you're going to have. Mazursky says, there was no dolly track, just a baby carriage to move the camera. Stanley did all the shooting. No matter what the problem, Kubrick always seemed to have an answer. To me, there was never a question that Stanley was already master of his universe. Well, you know, I failed to mention the fact that, yeah, he did shoot and edit this movie. I mean, not if there's oh, yeah. five crew members. Yeah, it, it bears repeating, though. But, yeah, he was he was pulling all the strings on this one. Yeah. Well, and I feel like that's, I mean, maybe that's kind of what made it an easy sell to his uncle a little bit. You know, I mean, he's already been, yeah. he's so young, he's been working for Look Magazine, taking tons of pictures and shooting some shorts and stuff. And it's like, yeah, don't worry. I won't mess it up, uncle. And then guess what happens? Kubrick makes the only bad Kubrick movie. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's true. That's, that's got a sting if you're Martin Perviler. <laughs> I wonder if he ever got his money back. <laughs> probably. <laughs> probably, yeah. probably. I think he'd stand uh, like uh, Eventually. Yeah. So anyway, so, so Kubrick comes back. He's got this movie. He's got to figure out a way to get it distributed, right? Mm-hmm. He writes to a, a film distributor named Joseph Bernstein. Uh, who'd only released films from foreign directors like Vittorio De Sica and Roberto Rossellini. By the way, I'm reading this off of Mental Floss. Okay. I'll include a link. Uh, they did a lot of the heavy lifting. So he bought it, and then, and, and you got to find, well, we got, uh, well, we'll obviously post the poster for it. The poster is ridiculous. Have you seen the poster? I'm looking at it right now. Yeah. You know, it has this tagline. It, it seems to have several taglines. There's taglines everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just, yeah, a few faces and a million taglines. Here's what it says under the title. Trapped, four desperate men and a strange half-animal girl. And, oh no, that's, that's a different movie. Sorry. It was a double bill. Oh. I was going to say, what the hell? Yeah, the male brute. I see that, yeah. Yeah, the story of a French prostitute and the male brute. I'm like, this is a 62-minute movie. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot. There's a lot happening in here. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is that great quote on the poster. I think this is just a bill from, like, Roxy Theater from their actually, like, the engagement at the theater itself. But anyway, the quote is from Walter Winchell. It says, the wolves are breathless about Virginia Leith. <laughs> yeah. And it's cool. got her. She's kind of on there with like a kind of what is that a tube top type it, situation? It's very revealing. You, yeah. There's no indication that this is a movie that has anything to do with war whatsoever. No, <laughs> no. I think <laughs> maybe that, that one. No, no. Not even that guy. Not even. I thought he had army boots on, but no. It yeah. looks like it looks like late night adult viewing. That's mm-hmm. what it looks like. Which I'd be amazed if that's, that's what we get. That's that's pretty awesome. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't. I definitely don't think that's what we're in for. I don't either, yeah. It continues to go deeper, th- these stories. I-, I have not dove-in, dove-in, right? Mm-hmm. D- dive-in? Not dove-in. Uh, all the way in, but I will certainly bring back s- uh, some more next time to uh, to pepper our-, our discussion of this movie, but I am really looking forward to seeing what could irritate Kubrick so much and delight film-goers even more. Me too. One other thing I did read on IMDb was that he had to reuse the same actors to play different like roles or, or to be extras or something <laughs> to fill out oh, the scene, yeah. you know, because of they just those were the only actors he had. Those five. I, I wonder if the if the laborers, the Mexican laborers, are they in the movie? I don't know, but we, I think we should purposely try to look for that. Oh, I'm definitely looking. Uh, I wanted to ask, have you ever seen Killer's Kiss? 
no. No, I haven't seen that one. I've seen The Killing. Yeah, okay. I, I love The Killing. A Killer's Kiss, I know, is included in that Criterion Blu-ray with The Killing. And it's yeah. it's pretty darn good, man. There's there's a lot of good stuff in that movie as well. So I'm check it out. certainly excited. I think, you know, part of me doesn't blame Kubrick for actually talking down about this movie. What Regardless of what he feels like, by that point, especially by 1994, I mean, the myth of this guy as a filmmaker is so large. Part of me looks at it as, as him saying, like, please, people, relax. Like, it's not, don't expect anything yeah. from this movie. Stop trying to read stuff into it. It was just me making my first movie just to make something any way I could. And right. and, and that's it, period, end of story. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean... This idea of him like trying to buy up all the prints and things like that, I mean, that certainly takes it to a level where it seems a bit more obsessive than that and yeah. f- only furthers the legend and fuels the interest. So, yeah, I'm f- I'm super excited to sit down and finally watch this thing. I mean, I do think this yeah. is the only movie I haven't seen at all. I, I There's very few. I think The Killer's, or Killer's Kiss may be the only one I haven't seen more than once. I really love the early era of Kubrick. I mean, all that stuff before 2001, uh, there's a lot of good good movies there that, uh, you know, rightfully so, maybe get overlooked and overshadowed by some of the stuff that came later, but there's just some, some really great stuff there. So glad that you picked it, even though you picked it because he died in March. <laughs> But hey, maybe reaching a little that's bit. That's okay. Yeah. You know, uh, we, you know, all I said was let's do themes for this season. I didn't say, I said they could be whatever you want them to be, right? Uh, last <laughs> yes. thing I want to mention is there appears to be a remake of this movie done by some very young filmmakers in 2016, and theirs is titled Down River. It's obviously not set during the same war period. This looks very mm-hmm. modern, but I watched the trailer today. It is made by filmmaker Alexander Ray Pimentel. And I don't know that that's streaming anywhere, but it might be worth checking out at some point. But Fear and Desire is on Amazon Prime right now. So go watch it and, yeah, come back and let's let's get into this thing. You know, I for everything I've read about this movie, so much of it is about the making of it and just positioning it within Kubrick's filmography versus what the hell this movie really is, you know, on its own. So I think that's part of our challenge when we go watch this thing and when we talk about it is to just really talk about it as a movie itself. So, (laughs) yeah, I think that's what we got to do. And, yeah, it would be great for for people to check it out and and join us in that. Uh, 100% agree. Can't wait to get back and get all over it. Yeah. Get all up in it. Yeah. I haven't watched a Kubrick movie at all in a while. It's It's been a while, so I, I'll have to dive back into all of yeah. these things, man. It might kick off the rabbit hole here. Come back next time. Go over to NeverHeardPodcast.com. Say uh, hello to us via email and social media, and we'll check you out next time. Checkity check. <laughs> Bye. Bye.